Good morning, everyone. Slim Dusty puts it this way in the song The Pub With No Beer. It's a lonesome away from your kindred and all. By the campfire at night, you'll hear the wild dingoes call. But there's nothing so lonesome, morbid or drear, than to stand in the bar of a pub with no beer. We Australians, we have our own version of John chapter 2. It's part of our folklore, part of one of Slim Dusty's songs, although for us it's not about wine but beer, and unfortunately in our story there is no miracle solution to the problem. Well, good morning everyone. My name is Carl. I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Unley. Thank you for being with us today. We're working our way through the early chapters of John's Gospel at the moment. And we're doing that with a particular set of glasses on or a lens. We're looking to see how this gospel shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Because, as we saw last week, that is John's purpose in writing. And so that's what we're looking for. And my guess is that most of us know this story pretty well. It's part, as I said, of our folklore. But before we do anything else this morning, I want us to see past the familiarity and just make sure that we get John's big message clear. Here's the big idea. Jesus is the Messiah. Because who else can turn water into wine? The only one who can do that is the one who has control over the material world. Having control over the material world in the way that this person does means that they must be God. I think that is the big idea in this passage. Who else could turn water into wine? And this is not a trick with a bottle tucked up its sleeve or some experiment in how to dilute wine. No, this is a real life miracle. Today, as we work our way through what is the first sign, the first miracle of Jesus, there are three points that I want us to look at. And you'll see those three points on your outline if you've got them. Firstly, I want us to look at this story again. Many of us will know it. But there are still bits, I think, when we look closely, that we might have questions about. Secondly, I want us to see the Old Testament connections here. And to see how this Miracle is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And thirdly, I just want to think through and consider, what does John mean by calling this a sign? What's he trying to do? But through all of this, I don't want us to miss the very big idea in this passage. Here is more evidence for us that Jesus is the Messiah. He has command over the material world. Let's take a look at the story. I think after the feeding of the 5,000, this is probably the the most well-known of Jesus' miracles. But as I said, if you take a closer look at the text, I think some questions begin to emerge. For example, of all the miracles that Jesus will go on to do, why does he start with this one? I mean, the benefit to the world of an extra bit of wine seems pretty small in comparison to being able to heal someone who's sick. So why does he start with this miracle of all miracles? And why does Jesus speak to his mother that way? Or even more profoundly, if if this is the first of Jesus' miracles, 
Why does his mother turn to Jesus in the first place? What was she expecting him to do? There are a number of questions as we dig into this passage. Now, in our culture today, there would be some embarrassment if a wedding was undercated for. It would be like the pub with no beer. The guests would be annoyed. But you know what? I think at the same time, if we were in that situation, most of us would just shrug our shoulders and, and move on. Perhaps you'd call into McDonald's on the way home from the wedding. Under catering in our culture, it's an embarrassment. But at the end of the day, no one's injured, no one dies, the couple still gets married. It's not the end of the world. But in the days when John wrote, I reckon there might have been just a little more at stake. Firstly, wedding feasts went for a lot longer than just an afternoon or an evening. They might have gone on for days. And people who travelled from afar to come to them, not by jumping in a car, but by walking, maybe for days after days. And so the expectation that you'd be fed and your thirst would be quenched at a wedding, I think, was higher. And it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that the wedding catering was well looked after. So if the catering fell short, it was clearly the groom's fault. And commentators tell us that this was a serious enough offence that the bride's family could even launch legal proceedings against the groom. So I think it's fair to assume that in this story that we're reading, a real drama has happened, rather than what we might call a melodrama. This is a real issue. Mary becomes involved because it seems as though she's maybe connected to the groom's family. It could be a brother of Jesus who's getting married. We don't know because the text doesn't tell us whose wedding it is, but what we do see is that Mary is obviously concerned. And so she turns to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. Strange thing to say, isn't it? She's not asking him, at least not directly asking him to fix the problem, although that's implied by the way in which Jesus responds. And yet, what do you think she expected Jesus to do? John tells us later in verse 11 that this was the first of Jesus' signs. So surely, Mary did not expect him to work a miracle at this point. I mean, that's not been his habit. Now, granted, Mary knew that Jesus was no ordinary person. His conception and the visitation by angels, I mean, that was clear for Mary. But up until this point, Jesus hadn't been going around doing lots of miracles. John tells us this was his first sign. So why does Mary turn to Jesus? Now, this is speculative, of course, but perhaps Joseph had died by this point. Verse 12 talks about Jesus' family. It makes no mention of Joseph either. Where was Joseph? Well, if he'd already died, then perhaps Jesus was the one to whom Mary usually went to discuss the issues in life. She might not have been expecting anything from Jesus. She might have just been going to him, you know, sounding, using him as a sounding board, and yet... Jesus decides to act. Mary's instructions to the servant implies that she had in some way expected him to do something. What do you reckon it was? Well, my hunch is that she was expecting him to act like you or I would if this happened to us. That we'd jump in our car and zoom down to the local Dan Murphy's and perhaps the servants would have needed, been needed to carry the boxes of wine to the car. Jesus' response to his mother, well, that's a little strange as well, isn't it? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. 
Now, I think most of us wouldn't refer to our mothers in this way. It's not a derogatory term in English, and it's not really derogatory in the original language either, but it is strange. What is Jesus doing, and why does John record this interaction with Jesus' mother in this way? And what does Jesus mean when he says, his hour has not yet come? Well, if this is the first time you've ever read John's Gospel, these words kind of might just slip past. But if you've read this Gospel before and you're a careful reader, then I reckon these verses would have got your brain working. And that's because this is what Don Carson calls an internal prolepsis. Now, I think only Don Carson knows what an internal prolepsis is, so I'm very thankful for his explanation. He says it's a reference to a thing that will be developed later. Let me show you what I mean. Come with me to chapter 17. Chapter 17 of John's Gospel. Jesus has just been speaking with his disciples about his impending crucifixion. And chapter 17 starts this way. After this, Jesus, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Now, back in chapter 2, the time of Jesus' glorification had not yet fully arrived. Jesus knew this. And for a reader working their way through this book again, rereading it a second or third or fourth time, here's a great insight for us. Jesus knew, even in chapter 2, what was going to happen. At this point in time, in chapter 2, his hour had not yet come. But it would come, he knew it would come, and it shows us that Jesus is in control. It shows us that his death on a cross is no accident. Even the timing of that death is in his control. And perhaps, just perhaps, the way he speaks to his mother is also an internal prolepsis. Come with me to John chapter 19, verse 25. John chapter 19, verse 25. Jesus is now on the cross. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the woman whom he loved stand, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. If I'm right about this, then what I see in chapter 2 is a very subtle indicator here that even for Mary, her salvation is tied to the cross. Nothing else saves. Even for Mary, who is Jesus' mother, there are no shortcuts to salvation. We see that in the story. Well, let's get back into the story. There are six stone water jugs at the wedding. And back in the time when John wrote this gospel, ceremonial washing was a big part of the Jewish traditions. Today, more than ever, we're washing our hands regularly. And in a time of a pandemic, that makes sense. In the time that Jesus wrote, it was customary to wash your hands and other items that were used at mealtimes, not just to get rid of germs, but to make yourself ceremonially clean. And you can read about that at the start of Mark chapter 7. 
And John tells us that the ceremonial water jugs or jars were big. In total, they might have held 750 litres of water. And Jesus directs the servants to fill them right to the brim. They do as they're told. They draw some water out. And it's choice wine. I want you to see this with fresh eyes again this morning. See, this is truly amazing. Who does that? No one. Who's able to do it? No one except the one who is in control of the material world. No one can do this except God's chosen one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah. And I think this is our author John's second great plank of evidence in his mission to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember last week, the evidence, we saw John the Baptist, he was sure he'd been sent by God, he saw Jesus and he knew that he was the Messiah. This week, it's the miraculous event of turning water into wine. It shows us that this man, Jesus, is the creator, the one who made all things. And if you take nothing else out of our passage today, please take this very obvious, very clear message. Who else could turn water into wine but the one who has power over the material world, the chosen one, God in human flesh, Jesus, is the Messiah. But for those of you who want to go a little deeper, I think there's also some extra richness in the story. Because I think John is also helping us to see that Jesus is the one who was promised, just as the Messiah was promised, Jesus is that promised Messiah because he's the one who fulfills the Old Testament promises. Firstly, I want you to see how Jesus is getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. Jesus could have chosen any receptacle to hold the wine. He could have chosen the empty wineskins that were lying around. But he chose the ceremonial washing jars. That's worth considering here. What's going on? I think there's a subtle way of showing that the old way of doing things is coming to an end. Cleanliness, being close to God, with Jesus on the scene, it's not about ceremonial washing, but about the forgiveness that he brings. Now that's too subtle. I want to show you a more robust connection with the Old Testament. Flick over with me to chapter 4, verse 46. I'm going to read to you the next of Jesus' miracle stories. This is what it says, chapter 4, verse 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said yesterday at one in the afternoon the fever left him. Then the father realised this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign 
Jesus performed after coming from Judah to Galilee. Did you notice that when we read these verses, John connects us back to chapter 2? We're in the same place where Jesus had turned water into wine before, but this time the sign is about the giving of life. The boy was as good as dead. The royal official comes to Jesus begging. This is his last resort. But then this was the man who turned water into wine. Death is defeated. The boy lives. Here's a simple message in this story. Who could do that other than the one who has control and power over life and death? Who could do that other than Jesus? Who could do that other than God's Son? That's the plain message there for all of us to see. Like water into wine, that's the big meaning. Who is this man, Jesus? He's the Messiah. But I want you to see that these things also fulfill the Old Testament promises. You see, God's coming into the world, God's salvation, would also come, it was told, with a banquet and with choice wine and with an end to death. Come with me back to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. I think this is so exciting. I really want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 25. It's roughly in the middle of your Bibles. And I want to read to you from verses 6 to 9. This is what it says, Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. So on the day when God's salvation is realised, two things are depicted as happening. A banquet will be served And at that banquet there will be the finest of wines. And not only that, but the shroud that enfolds all people, death, will be swallowed up. Choice wine flowing and death being defeated are things that mark the coming of God. We see both of those things in the early chapters of John's Gospel. Surely this man Jesus is God. We trusted him. And he saved us, it says in Isaiah. John records for us the first two signs of Jesus. Turning water into wine and saving a boy that was as good as dead. Both of those things on their own demand that we take a closer look at Jesus. This is no ordinary person. But at a deeper level, these are the things that God promised. 700 years before they happened. Messiah would come. A saviour would come. And when he comes, you'll know it's him because choice wine will flow and death will be defeated. See, John's just given us one more reason to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. Okay, so we've seen John's big point. Who else could turn water into wine other than the Messiah? The one who has control over the material world. And we've been looking at some of the complexity here and seeing that, well, Jesus is actually fulfilling 
some of the Old Testament. So what does this mean for us today? I think the first thing we must see from this passage, we must do with this passage, is that we must respond to Jesus in belief. Come with me to verse 11 of John chapter 2. This is what it says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. See, John decides what, John describes what has happened at the wedding as a sign. Signs communicate a message, don't they? So, for example, a stop sign at the intersection demands, it communicates a message warning, you must stop here. This sign, turning water into wine, communicates to us that Jesus is the Messiah. And the response is to believe in him. You might wonder how belief really matters. Why does God matter if I believe, you might say? I think I should just live a good life and let the other things worry about themselves. Well, I've got this from another preacher, Al Stewart, but I reckon belief is how we relate to God. See, it's through Jesus and belief in him that we can relate and come into relationship with the Trinitarian God. Being good is not enough. God wants us to relate to him through belief. I'll borrow this illustration, as I said, from um, Al Stewart, but imagine your child does everything right. You've got a perfect son. He's great at school, plays sport well, keeps his room tidy, never gets into fights with the other kids, always does the dishes, even picks up his dirty laundry. He's the whole kit and caboodle, the best son you could ever want, but he never acknowledges you, never relates to you, never talks to you. As a parent, you'd be sad, distraught, wouldn't you? God's the same. He wants us to relate to him. We do that through belief in Jesus. This passage demands that we see Jesus as the Messiah, as God's chosen one, and having seen that, our response should be one of belief. The other thing that I think this passage does, at least for me, is that it corrects the view that I might have of who Jesus is. See, our culture itself makes Jesus out to be a killjoy. He's presented as stern and serious and a long way from joyful. Now, I think our culture would tell us that if Jesus was at a party, he'd be the one telling the guests to go home. He'd be turning off the lights or turning down the music. But here in the story, what we actually see is Jesus providing choice wine. Now, of course, the Bible does speak very clearly about not abusing alcohol. Don't mishear me at this point. But the Jesus that John presents in this gospel is a Jesus who is celebrating. God is at work in the world. He's fixing the world. He's repairing the brokenness. He's providing choice wine. God is not against the good things in the world. Jesus is not against celebrations. We must let the gospel inform us about the sort of picture that we have of Jesus and not let our worldview or the culture around us dictate what we know about Jesus. Here we see Jesus celebrating the good things and the good times in life. Jesus is the Messiah. Who else could turn water into wine? Who else has command over the material world but God? He's God's promised Messiah. The one who promised 
was promised in the Old Testament. And you can see that in the text here. The appropriate response today is to believe. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for John's words that help us see with great clarity that your son Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father God, we ask that you would help us to believe this. Please help us to shape our view of who your son is and to see him as a saviour. Amen.